welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be reviewing the book, The Message of the Psalms, a Theological Commentary by Walter Brueggemann. It's funny, this book was written in 1984, and I was born in 1983, and so my entire life I have grown up without this book, but this would have been very critical for me to have read earlier in my life, because it talks about the Psalms in such a way that it makes the Psalms a real living document. It speaks to our everyday life. It speaks to the theology that at most affects us. I always had the conception that the Psalms were sugar-coated, liturgical, and just general praises. They didn't, didn't very much interest me, so I didn't spend too much time reading the Psalms. But the Psalms, in reality, are very crucial, unguarded, they are very direct and bold in their statements about God, to God, about how life is. They speak in such a way that's incredibly relevant to our everyday experience with pain and suffering, with just the reality of how the world is. So I think I'm going to start this review by just quoting Brueggemann's concluding thought. This is the last paragraph in his book. We dare not be positivists about our spirituality. As though we live in a world in which all issues are settled, the spirituality of the Psalms assumes that the world is called to question in this conversation with God. That permits and requires that our conversations with God be vigorous, candid, and daring. God assumes different roles in these conversations. At times, God is the guarantor of the old equilibrium. At other times, God is the harbinger of a new justice to be established. At times also, God is in the disorientation, being sovereign in ways that do not strike us as adequate. We might wish for a God removed from such a dynamic, for a spirituality not so inclined to conflict, but the Psalms reject such a way with God as false to our daily life, and false to the memories of his people, who know they do not belong to the Egyptian empire, but who hope for a new equilibrium in a kingdom of justice and righteousness. On this, the Psalter insists passionately, vigorously with boldness. Brueggemann here is saying that Israel had a concept of how the world should be. The world should be ruled with justice, with righteousness, where the wicked get punished and the righteous are exalted. But this is not our everyday experience. It's not our experience now. It was not their experience during the time of the Psalms. And a lot of times they call God to account for this. They say, you know, God, the wicked are prospering, their children are fat and happy. Why, God? Why is this happening? Why are you letting this happen? And and listen to how candid those statements are against God. They're accusatory. They're saying, God, you are not performing justice on earth. They're candid. They are entrenched in a hurt. They're very passionate. They're sincere. And they're very direct. They're not sugar-coated. So Walter Brueggemann, with this statement, is saying, this is the reality of the Psalms. This is the reality of how the Psalms are written with this candidness, directness to God about the injustice that we see in the world. And the assumption is, it's not the Calvinist assumption that this world is the greatest glory to God and God controls all things. That is not the assumption at all. The assumption is that the world is broken and God needs to act. God is called upon to act, to right this broken world. Or sometimes it's that God is negligent in allowing the world to be this way. 
there's always this correction that is wanted. In this book, Brueggemann divides the Psalms into three main categories. The first category is Psalms of Orientation. These are Psalms that talk about how good things are, how great God is, their joy and delight in Yahweh, the continual blessings that he shows Israel. These are Psalms about the way life should be. These are seasons of well-being, as Bergman puts it. But then there's this other type of psalm. And these are the psalms of lament. These are the psalms of what Brueggemann calls disorientation. And he writes, human life consists in anguish, seasons of hurt, alienation, suffering, and death. These evoke rage, resentment, self-pity, and hatred. Matching this, we will consider psalms of disorientation, poems and speech forms that match the season in its ragged, painful disarray. This speech, the layman, has a recognizable shape that permits the extravagance, hyperbole, and abrasiveness needed for the experience. Bergman describes a third category as well. These are psalms of reorientation. These are psalms in which diversity had been encountered, but the author then had a turn of events and now praises God. And he will categorize psalms of thanksgiving under this type of uh, psalm, and psalms of ascension, of God taking control uh, over the false gods, over the pagan nations. These are psalms of reorientation, where a new order comes after a season of pain or suffering. Brueggemann sees the Psalms as almost cyclic. It goes in this cycle where there's an orientation, there's a disorientation, and then there's a reorientation. And it might be that it cycles around again. There's more disorientation, then more reorientation afterwards. As such, no matter where a believer is in their day-to-day life, no matter what level of suffering or level of joy, they could pretty much always find a Psalm that kind of matches where they are in their spiritual walk, in their physical walk, in their outside oppression against them, just their station in life, their place in life. We're going to first start with the Psalms of Orientation. Brueggemann writes, These Psalms in various ways are expressions of creation faith. They affirm that the world is a well-ordered, reliable, and life-giving system because God has ordained it that way and continues to preside effectively over the process. At the same time, there is profound trust in the daily working of that system and profound gratitude to God for making it so. So when we're looking at these Psalms of orientation, a lot of times they're going to be just general praises to God. They'll be like, oh God, uh, you are so good. You are so faithful. And they're, they're just affirming the status quo, how good life currently is. It's, there's almost this uh, elemental naivety to it. Like There's nothing bad in the world. It's basic, unadulterated faith in God's goodness. It doesn't seem like the speaker has any crucial or critical or depressing events happening to them. Just, just a bliss about how the world is. These are the types of psalms that were very off-putting to me as a child where it's a, everything's great, everything's happy, we're everyone smiling. It, the world's not really like that. We don't encounter it very often. And we're living in a day and age where we're richer, healthier, live longer than ever, 
And even we see the constant pain and suffering in this world. So when Christians focus on these psalms of orientation as opposed to the songs of lament, it's really doing a disservice to their congregation, to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, because they're building a false portrait of what the psalms are about. One thing that I like that Brueggemann points out about these psalms of orientation are just the characteristic way in which it speaks about God. A lot of modern theology, it talks about, you know, how God is immutable or omnipresent or omniscient. You don't find those statements about God in the Psalms, especially the Psalms of Orientation. And the Psalms of Orientation use a lot of categorizations about God, who God is, how God acts, how God thinks. And, and they're not these negative attributes. They're not these uh, theological, these stoic attributes. Brueggemann writes, The characteristics of God stated here are not those dealt with by popular theology. Instead, these are dimensions of personal, relational, covenantial life. The creation holds together because of Yahweh's faithfulness. From that inexplicable but unwavering faithfulness, all of life is trusted to have coherence. Two points can be made about the celebration of faithfulness. First, this is not a conclusion reached through theological analysis and speculation, you know, like a modern Calvinist might do. It is a judgment made out of experience of daily reliability, evidence from the simple facts of being nourished and having necessities of life provided. Notice how Israel takes evidence to form their conclusion about God. They take evidence in history, evidence of their day-to-day -day experience. It's not theological speculation. Brueggemann's second point goes on to say that Israel's faith, especially in these Psalms of Orientation, are very much in common with a little child, their faith in their parent. They just put unwavering trust, basic trust. How this book is structured is Brueggemann talks about the types of the psalms, and then he gives a bunch of psalms and goes over a bunch of psalms in each category. So he goes over Psalms 1 and Psalms 119 and these psalms of orientation. And he just he doesn't quote them very much, but he just talks about what they are, the general concepts, and the structure of those psalms. Brueggemann's next category of psalms are Psalms of Disorientation. And this is where he spends most of his time and most of his effort going over because this is where he sees, and I see this too, that the church is very deficient in talking about these psalms and understanding this way of looking at the world. And Brueggemann writes, It is a curious fact that the church has, by and large, continued to sing songs of orientation in a world increasingly experienced as disorientated. That may be laudatory. It could be that such relentlessness is an act of bold defiance in which these psalms of order and reliability are flung in the face of disorder. In that way, they insist that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Such a mismatch between our life experience of disorientation and our faith speech of orientation could be a great evangelical nevertheless. Such a counterstatement insists that God does, in any case, govern rule and order, regardless of how the data seem to appear. And therefore, songs of Torah, wisdom, creation, and retribution speak truly, even if the world is experienced as otherwise. It is possible that the church uses psalms of orientation in this way. 
But at best, this is only partly true. It is my judgment that this action of the church is less an evangelical defiance guided by faith and much more a frightened, numb denial and deception that does not want to acknowledge or experience the disorientation of life. We as Christians probably have each experienced a church where everyone puts on a false front. Everyone puts on a front that everything's happy, everyone's marriages are perfect, and our problems aren't talked about, and they are not brought to church, they're not spoken about in church, and there's people just try to sweep all their issues under the rug. And that's what Bergman is saying here, is that these psalms of disorientation might be neglected and the psalms of orientation might be championed because people just want to not face life. They want to create a false reality. To those sorts of Christians, these psalms may not resonate very effectively. And also those Christians who think that God is in complete control of the world, that God sovereignly controls all facets of what we experience, these psalms of disorientation fly directly in the face of that kind of thinking. Bergman writes, First, the gamut of expressions employed here never escapes addressed to Yahweh. What is said to Yahweh may be scandalous and without redeeming social value, but these speakers are completely committed, and whatever must be said about the human situation must be said directly to Yahweh, who is the Lord of human experience and partner with us in it. Later on, Brueggemann talks about Psalms 35, and he writes, In reflecting on the mood and movement of this prayer, two observations about psalmic piety are in order. First, the prayer life of the speaker is filled with anger and rawness. There is no attempt to be polite or docile. Psalmic prayer practices no cover-up. Real prayer is being open about the negatives and yielding them to God. Brueggemann then goes on to generalize about these psalms of lament. Second, the relation to God in these psalms is not at all cozy, comfortable, or congenial. There is an edge of resentment and resistance here that involves some jeopardy of the relationship. The speaker has some of the cards which will be played only after Yahweh's lead. Yahweh will be freely praised, but only when there's specific reason for praise. This point is extremely critical for those people who care about Christian and Jewish theology, God does not hold all the cards. It's not as in Greek metaphysics where God is self-sufficient and needs nothing. The speakers throughout the Psalms assumed that they could bargain with God. They could convince God. They could influence God. They could make deals with God because God does not hold all the cards in these relationships. Some of the assumption is the speaker does have some power and influence over God. And we're going to talk about this very shortly as we now talk about the basic format of the Lament Psalms. Lament Psalms are generally broken into two distinct parts. First, there's the plea, and Brueggemann writes about all this, and then there's the praise afterwards. And the praise is assumed to take place after some sort of event happens in the psalm, which writes the wrong, writes the plea, corrects what is being asked for. So we'll see King David, for example, and he will say, oh, death is upon me, everyone's trying to kill me. And then the second part of the psalm is, oh, you have redeemed me, you have saved me. It's broken up into the plea, which is then countered by the praise. 
The plea can be further subdivided. The first part of the plea is an address to God, and he writes, Alberts has shown that the address tends to be intimate and personal. The complaint is not spoken by one who is a stranger to Yahweh, but one who has a long history of trustful interaction. The next part is usually the complaint. The purpose of the prayer is to characterize for God how desperate the situation is. While the situation might be variously one of sickness, isolation, imprisonment, or destruction, the imagery of speech is often about death. The rhetoric appears to overstate the case, hopefully to evoke from Yahweh an intrusive, transformative act. While it's not always the case, the complaint tends not only to describe the situation of urgent need, but to hold Yahweh accountable for it. The speaker intends to turn his problem into a problem for Yahweh, for it's Yahweh who is both able and responsible for doing something about it. So our two elements so far is usually the speaker has some direct experience with Yahweh, some familiarity with Yahweh, and they present a challenge to Yahweh that they believe Yahweh is the one who's responsible for correcting. The next element is usually petition. On the basis of the complaint, the speaker makes a petition that asks God to act decisively. This element is perhaps the most intense because it is spoken as bold imperative. There is no suggestion here of either redensence or difference. What that means is that the speaker doesn't assume that it's up to Yahweh to act or not act. The speaker just assumes it is for Yahweh to act. And it's it's not like the sugar-coated request. It's very direct and bold. He goes on, The speaker assumes some rights against the throne. And so the urgency of speech has judicial quality. The speaker does, of course, ask for attentive compassion, but the speaker also insists on his rights. It is a plea for justice as much as mercy. With the suggestion that the unjust situation has arisen because of Yahweh's inattentiveness. Imagine if you're praying in front of your Christian friends and you blame God for inattentiveness. You say, God, where were you when this happened? God, you need to wake up. You need to act. You need to do something to right this wrong. And you're praying with bold defiance. They're all going to look at you like you're crazy because that's just not part of our theological landscape here in America. The next part of the plea is what's most interesting to me. It's the motivations. We talked already about how people bargain with God. They have some claim against the throne. They have some cards in the game. And in the motivation step, and we find it throughout the Psalms, people try to bargain with God for God to act. And let's read this. Motivations, less crucial but most interesting, is the inclination of the Psalms to provide motivations to give God reason to act. Some of this is less than noble, but it is speech of the desperate voice that has no time for being noble. At times, the motivation comes particularly close to bargaining, bribing, or intimidating. But this also needs to be taken as a kind of parody assumed in the relationship. Among the motivations are these. And pay attention here. This is how people motivate God in their prayers. This is how they bargain with God. This is how they intimidate him. This is how they bribe God. Number one, the speaker is innocent and is entitled to help. People feel a sense of entitlement. Contrast that with Calvinism, where everyone's totally depraved and God owes no one anything. We're all supposed to be hellbound or something like that. That's not assumed in the Psalms. The speaker is innocent and entitled to help. 
Number two, the speaker is guilty, but repents and seeks forgiveness and restoration. Three, the speaker recalls God's goodness on earlier generation, which serves as precedent for God's goodness. Now, God should do once again what he has done in the past. Fourth, the speaker is valued by God as one who praises. If the speaker is permitted to die, the speaker will cease to praise, and the loss will be Yahweh's. This this is really interesting to me. You see this in King David a lot. He says, God, if I die now, I can't go out and go sing praises to you. So you have a vested interest in keeping me alive. He's bargaining with God. He's bargaining. Five, the speaker finally goes beyond self and appeals to Yahweh to consider God's own power, prestige, and reputation. People appeal to God's reputation. They, they, they say, God, do this for your own name's sake. And we see that, that, that phrase in the Bible, your own name's sake. God cares about his reputation. God cares about his reputation. And people appeal to this to get God to act. Finally, the loss in death will not be to the speaker, but to Yahweh, who will be perceived as unable to care for his own. They say, God, if, if you let me die, everyone will think you're just weak and incompetent. This may be analogous to the inability of a national government to protect its own citizens in a hostile country. Although the citizen may suffer, the key loss is that the government loses respect and face among the nations. The pill is... For thy name's sake, which means for the sake of God's reputation. This should be amazing to everyone who's paying attention that there are motivators that people put in their prayers to God to get God to do things. And one of them is God protect your image, your reputation. And one is God, you're going to lose out on my praises if I die. I would add another one to this list that the speaker sometimes says, I will go make converts for you through, through singing your praises, you know? So God can be appealed to this. The writers of the Psalms believe that God could be appealed to and God could be motivated to act through motivations. You see some open theists just making up complete nonsense stories about what happened in the Exodus 32 narrative where Moses lays down a list of reasons and compels God not to act for those reasons, they'll just discount that entire, open theists will do this, they'll discount that entire conversation and that entire list of motivators as having any relevance to God's acts. This is not biblical theology when people are just discounting that in favor of what they want to consider as self-sufficiency or whatever, or or even present omniscience. So they'll say, well, God should know this argument that his reputation is going to be harmed already. He should already have it in his mind because he has all present knowledge. The text doesn't really assume that if, if that's the case. Brueggemann elsewhere writes, Inside the psalm, the speech proceeds on the assumption that Yahweh is now being told what Yahweh needs to know. And that, of course, is the premise on which all serious prayer operates. In this serious exchange, the speaker provides data out of which Yahweh makes a new act. The speaker does indeed impinge upon Yahweh in a new way. Yeah, these these psalms of lament, they are serious, they are direct, they are to be taken at, at face value. These are real prayers to get God to act. They're really bargaining, they're really giving motivations that they think that will compel Yahweh to act. And it's systematic in the Bible. The last element in these pleas 
sometimes you're going to find a curse, and Bergerman calls it imprecation. It's a curse. It's clear that such speech tends to be regressive and moves into unguarded language in that most religious discourse is censored and precluded. Perhaps the most regressive element is imprecation. This is the voice of resentment and vengeance that will not be satisfied until God works retaliation on those who have done the wrong. We all know the psalm of lament by the water of Babylon, Psalm 137. And in the end of this psalm, those who are Yahweh's, those who are of Israel, they want to take the children of Babylon and dash their children against the rocks. This is the type of cursing that we see in the Psalms against one's enemies. King David writes, Break their teeth in their mouth, Lord. Have them shrivel like snails. These Psalms of Lament often turn themselves around and turn into Psalms of Praise. You start out real negative and then you break into praises that God has fulfilled your needs, which suggests that God hears the prayer and God acts upon the prayer. Quoting Brueggemann, but if one enters into the poem and takes its movement as seriously reflecting the relationship between two partners, then one must conclude that is indeed the complaint which moves Yahweh to act. And each part of the psalm must be taken realistically as reflective of a real movement in this relationship. Really quick, because we're kind of running out of time here, I'm going to talk about one of those comments on Psalms 88. And this is maybe my favorite psalm in the book of Psalms. It's the darkest psalm in the book of Psalms. And it's one in which, you know, there's that usual reversal of where there's the plea and then there's a praise. This psalm doesn't have it. This psalm ends on a negative note without resolution. And Bergman writes, The unanswered plea does not silence the speaker. Perhaps the speaker is in fact speaking to an empty sky, but that does not deter the speaker. The faith of Israel is like that. The failure of God to respond does not lead to atheism or doubt in God or rejection of God. It leads to a more intense address. This psalm, like the faith of Israel, is utterly contained in the notion that Yahweh is there and must be addressed. Yahweh must be addressed even if Yahweh never answers. In verses 3 through 9, the speaker addresses a barrage at Yahweh. The speaker is not very cunning or calculating. The speech is not deliberately presented or ordered to evoke an answer. There is no plain up to God. There is only anger. If one wanted to tease or persuade Yahweh to answer, this is not the way to go about it. But the speaker has no leisure for niceties. Yahweh should not need persuasion, for he's expected to answer. As Psalm 88, it's, it's pure emotion. It's pure emotion. It's pure anger at Yahweh for the way things are. The speaker, he feels violated, and he doesn't know why these things are happening, and he wants Yahweh to intervene, and no answer comes to him. And one would imagine that this is pretty normal experience like the Jews in Auschwitz, in the concentration camps being killed, people in war, they probably pray to God, and some of them are not answered, and they die. They die in horrendous ways. This is not a psalm you're going to find on any motivational sayings calendar or, or any psalm that you're going to hear a sermon on. People avoid this psalm because this psalm is raw anger at God. When people say to me, you know, you can't be angry at God ever in your prayers. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking. They're not following the examples set forth in the Psalms, in which often the case, in the most painful experience, 
the anger was absolute and directed at Yahweh and placed in the Bible as a testament to Israel's relationship with God, how they interacted with God. Someone tells you you can never be mad at God, they're wrong. To clarify, remember the author is not an atheist. His anger at God has not led him into rejecting God or atheism. He's not in rebellion of God. This is just a normal part of a relationship in which one member is on the verge of death due to the inaction of another member of the relationship. The next category of psalm that Bergman deals with, he calls the new orientation. And this he divides into songs of thanksgiving. These are individual thanksgivings where an individual was on the verge of death or something and then came out of that, is now praising God. Then there's thanksgiving songs of the community. This is when the community gets together and usually makes a very unspecific uh, thanksgiving plea to God, saying, giving thanks and praise for getting them out of some unspecified situation. There's sometimes referrals back to the Exodus or events in their history, just praising God's power. And then we got the Psalms of the once and future king in which God takes sovereignty over the entire earth. These are Ascension Psalms. And this is where Israel gets most metropolitan. They start including Gentiles in these statements in which God is going to retake the earth and make things right, judge the world, judge them with equity and equality, and all peoples are going to come to God. This is the new orientation that they longed for, that they wanted. And then we read about these types of new orientations in the prophets when God is ultimately going to restore the earth. So these Psalms of reorientation, I would link some of these ones about God being the future king to just Jewish eschatology in general, in which God is going to remake the earth. That's about all the time we have for today. If you have any questions or comments on today's episode, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open companion Facebook group. Thank you for listening. (music) 